Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to my podcast. Last week, I began a series of episodes entitled, Whatever Happens, based on the little New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 is the key verse of the book. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's our theme. Today, we'll continue with some background information from the book of Acts, chapter 16, because that's where we learn about the founding or the planting of the church in the city of Philippi. But first, as we'll see in today's episode, a healthy heart has an appreciation for both the newer music of the church and the great hymns of the faith. I have a video course entitled Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns, in which during nine episodes I teach you the history of hymnody, which is essentially a course in church history, and I also go through the hymn book introducing you to some of the greatest music of all time. You can enjoy this video series in private or as a group study, and you'll find it at my website, robertjmorgan.com, under the Courses tab. It's called Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns. And now on to today's study from Acts 16. Only a few people still read missionary biographies and autobiographies, but I'm one of them. I find that they are just full of the most remarkable stories and most breathtaking narratives that you'll ever encounter. This week I read the autobiography of Anna K. Scott, who joined her husband, Edward Payson Scott, and went to a remote area of northeastern India. Nearby there was an ethnic group known as the Naga people, N-A-G-A, the Naga people, and they were exceedingly dangerous. Edward determined to venture into the area and to take them the gospel. At that time, India was under British control, and the governing officials begged him to abandon his plans. They said no British officer had ever been able to enter that area. They said that a young Naga warrior who wanted to marry had to show 30 skulls of human beings before he was considered brave enough to protect a wife. The Naga warriors carried long spears that had poison at their tips. But Edward Scott was undeterred. He felt a compulsion to go, and he took two things with him, his Bible and his violin. As he entered the Naga area, he had to pass through a narrow chasm, and suddenly he found himself surrounded by twelve warriors, each one holding a spear pointed directly at his heart. He stopped and opened his violin case and began playing a beloved hymns. There are several different accounts as to which hymn it was, 
And perhaps, in fact, he did play several hymns. But in her autobiography, his wife Anna said that it was Isaac Watts' great hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross, a Follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Well, the warriors were mesmerized by the incredible sound of this violin. One by one, they dropped their spears and begged him to continue playing. And then they said, you may come and stay among us as long as you bring that violin with you. Edward went into that area. He was singing and playing and he was preaching and many of the tribe came to Christ. Well, that tells us something. There is a special power to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that defies explanation. And so that's why I want to bring us to the subject today and next week also, Whatever Happens, Sing. Well, let's consider, for example, what happened in the Roman city of Philippi in New Testament days. In Acts 16, Paul and his assistant Silas started out on a missionary tour across Asia Minor, essentially modern-day Turkey, and they were soon joined by a teenager named Timothy, and the three of them wanted to preach the gospel wherever they could. We looked at this in last week's episode. All of the doors were closed to them for about a thousand miles until they finally got to the westernmost city, which was called Troas, on the Aegean coast. And that's where Paul had a vision from a man from northern Greece begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And immediately, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, joined them, and the four of them booked passage across the Aegean Sea and went to the great city of Philippi. I have visited many Roman ruins throughout Europe and the Middle East, but I've never been to Philippi. I have studied pictures of the archaeological sites there, and it was a remarkable metropolis, a huge city with columns and a vast outdoor theater and marketplaces and colonnaded streets. Well, we find out what happened there in Acts 16, beginning with verse 11. So if you're able to open your Bible, then study along with me. Acts 16 and verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. Do you know that in his writings, Luke always took pains to point out the role of wealthy women in the spread of the gospel? In Acts chapter 8, or rather in the book of Luke, his gospel, chapter 8, he listed the wealthy women of Galilee who supported the Lord's ministry. In Acts chapter 8, He described the mother of John Mark, who had a large house and servants for the entertaining of the Christians in Jerusalem. Later, he's going to talk to Priscilla, who was a businesswoman. And here in Philippi, we meet Lydia. 
She dealt in purple fabrics. If we could visit her booth in the Philippian marketplace, we would have been wide-eyed at her luxurious fabrics and colors. In 2021, archaeologists in Israel announced the discovery of fragments of purple fabric that date back to the reigns of David and Solomon. According to archaeologists, this color of purple was very rare and was drawn from certain creatures of the sea, and creating the color, this dye, was extremely expensive. Lydia's hometown of Thyatira was, was famous for the production of this cloth, and so apparently Lydia exported it to Philippi, and she had a thriving business. Verse 14 also says, She was a worshiper of God. This likely means that she was a Gentile who had adopted the Jewish religion in her attempt to become closer to the Lord. It's often thought that the Jewish population of Philippi was too small for a synagogue. And so there was a handful of Jews and Gentile proselytes, apparently mostly or totally women, who had a meeting place by the river. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke showed up there, and they met Lydia, and Paul explained his message of the coming of the Messiah, the message of the gospel. Verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so Lydia became Paul's first known convert in modern-day Europe, as we would say, and her house became a meeting place for the church that was starting to form in this vast city. And some time passes as Paul and his companions seek to continue to share the gospel with others, and then we have this incident in verse number 16. Once, Luke wrote, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who is telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. This servant girl became the second known convert. Now think about this. Two women had been saved, but they were at different levels of the social continuum. Lydia was a wealthy business owner, and a slave girl was human traffic. And yet they became sisters in Christ and Paul's first two known converts in Europe. Well, the deliverance and conversion of this slave girl triggered a violent reaction. Verse 19 says, When her owners realized that their hope for making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities, and brought them before the magistrates, and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, 
and the authorities ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into the prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. It's impossible for us to imagine how painful this kind of beating might have been. In that classic civil rights book, Twelve Years a Slave, a man named Solomon Northup was forced into slavery. And he said that when he was being whipped, that he thought he would die, that his whole body was on fire. We assume that the rods used here in Philippians chapter or in Acts chapter 16 badly bruised or cut through the skin because later the text talks about their wounds. Thankfully, young Timothy and Dr. Luke avoided the beating, but Paul and Silas were taken and disrobed and battered and abused and then sent to the prison, placed in an innermost cell in stocks, which probably means, almost certainly it means, their hands were stretched above their heads and their feet fastened on the other end. Whether they were vertical or horizontal, we don't know. But now we come to the verse that I want to focus on, this amazing scene in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Well, that's the verse I want to come back to. But let's get the rest of the story. Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all of the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And so the church continued to grow, but at great cost. Had you or I been able to attend a Sunday service there, we would have seen Lydia and her household. We would have seen this slave girl and now the jailer and his family. Luke, here in Acts chapter 16, takes quite a bit of time to tell us about the founding of this church in Philippi, but the one truth that I want to come back to and underscore is this. Whatever happens, sing. Now, I'm going to expand on that because this is a spiritual principle and a devotional discipline that has almost been lost to us in our modern day. 
and lost really for the first time, I think, since the Reformation. Notice the setting. Paul and Silas were throbbing in pain. They were immobilized. They were in total darkness, and yet they were singing at midnight. That can only mean one thing, that they had the words, the lyrics of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs already stored away in their minds. They didn't have a hymn book with them. There were no words projected onto the walls of the prison. They sang from memory. They had an internalized hymn book in their heads. Now, I'm sure that this came from their Jewish heritage. I don't know if every Jew memorized each one of the 150 Psalms or not, but every practicing Jew knew very many of them by heart. They sang them in the synagogues. They sang them in the temples. They sang them in the city squares. They sang them at the festivals. They sang them as they traveled to the feast in Jerusalem. They sang them in their private devotions. We're told that Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn during the Last Supper. So here is my thesis. Apart from memorized scripture, there is nothing more crucial to your emotional and spiritual well-being than having in your brain a selection of memorized psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I believe this is biblical. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. That implies the word of God is filling your mind and that the songs of Christ are filling your heart. And here's the thing, we can memorize songs more easily and quickly than we memorize Scripture. When my girls were little, all of them very small, we taught them the alphabet very easily. And we did it probably the way that maybe you did with your children or grandchildren, with a little song. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. I don't know how long it would have taken for them to have learned the 26 different unrelated syllables by rote, but by using the song, they learned it very quickly. A good hymn or praise song is a miniature Bible study, versified and set to music. That is, in essence, what the book of Psalms is. David, who was both a theologian and a musician, studied the Torah, the first five books of Moses. They were, for all of Practical purposes, that was his Bible. He read it over and over, and he meditated day and night on Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And from his meditations from the Torah, he created these little Bible studies and versified them with parallelism and set them to music. Many of them reflected episodes in his own life and the feelings and the emotions that he had, and he was applying this scripture to everyday practical living and turning them into songs, and that became the book of Psalms. The Hebrew people memorized some or most or probably all of them. They could learn Psalm 23 by singing it much easier 
than they could memorize, say, Deuteronomy chapter 4. And so from this heritage, Paul and Silas had a treasure trove of devotional material in their minds and hearts. And at the midnight hour, it spilled out in singing. Paul was a Hebraic Jew. Silas was a Hellenistic Jew. But they both knew how to sing in the night, and they had songs ready in their minds and hearts for the midnight hour of pain and grief. What would they have sung? Well, let's look at some possibilities. I don't know how the music would have sounded, but we do have the lyrics of the songs they would have sung. I don't know the specific ones, but it might have been, for example, Psalm 18. Turn over there with me to Psalm number 18. It says, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I've been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangle me. The torrents of destruction overwhelm me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. Now listen to this. Verse 6. In my distress I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. And the earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. Now just imagine if this was what they were singing when Paul and Silas got to this point in singing 18, what if it actually happened? They called on the Lord in their distress in verse 6, and just as they sang verse 7 about the earth shaking, the earthquake shook the jail, the earth trembled and quaked, and the prison doors were jarred open. Can you think of a more appropriate song for that evening? But here's another possibility. Remember, they were in the innermost cell at midnight, and it was totally black. But maybe they sang Psalm 27. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. In the darkness, maybe they sang, The Lord is my light. Or check out Psalm 48, uh, rather, Psalm number 68. It says, Sing to God, sing and praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds, rejoice before him. His name is the Lord, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. He sets the lonely in families, and he leads out the prisoners, with singing. That's verse 6, and that's literally what happened to Paul and Silas. God in his holy dwelling 
led them out of prison through singing. Or here is one more possibility. Psalm 129. The writer said, They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furloughs long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. Well, the rods of the lictors had plowed across the backs of Paul and Silas with long furrows, but the Lord was setting them free. The enemy didn't gain the victory. Well, here's my point. In the Bible, in the history of hymnody, and in our modern songs, God has given us the gift of music with lyrics for whatever we face in life. But we need to be developing our own internalized set of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs so that we will have them as Paul and Silas did when we need them in the midnight hour or in the midst of pain. Apart from memorized scripture, there is nothing more critical to your emotional and spiritual well-being than having in your brain a selection of memorized psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs. I cannot tell you what this has meant to me. Colossians 3.16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now that verse implies that the word of God is filling your mind and the songs of Christ are filling your heart, which then allows you to sing in all of the moments of life. I begin this podcast episode with a missionary story, and so let me close with one. I've just finished reading the story of Walter and Aline Hunt, who were missionaries to the Philippines. They served there with great fruitfulness for many years, and then the Lord led them back to the United States, where they served him faithfully for several more years. One day, in 1978, Walter and Aline learned that the International Church in Manila needed a pastor. Well, at first, they resisted the thought. Walter was engaged in a stateside ministry. He was pastoring a church, and Aline had just begun a counseling ministry. They didn't want to go, but they began to feel a tug from the Holy Spirit. And one day, Aline said, as she was driving down a Texas highway, A song came to her mind with tremendous force, and she started singing it there in the car by herself out loud. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. And at that moment, she had total peace and joy, confidence, anticipation, and excitement. And she said, okay, Lord, I will go. And her husband said the same thing. And they began preparing for the next stage of their life and ministry. Well, when we have the newer music or the classic hymn stored away in our hearts, The Lord has a way of using it almost like memorized scripture.
So I'd like to suggest that you select a song that you like, old or new, and sing it enough to get the lyrics into your short-term and then into your long-term memory. This is a practice now missing from most of our American church attenders, but we can revive it. Include the music of the Lord in your life in an increasingly rich way. I'll have more about this next week. In the meantime, check out my course, Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns, on the courses page of my website, robertjmorgan.com. Thank you for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing by Jared Brummett. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson, Luke Tyler, and Carson Outlaw. Music is by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. Look for the transcript of this podcast soon on the blog page of my website, robertjmorgan.com, where you'll also find many other resources. Thank you for listening, and may God be with you until we meet again.